Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. I'm speaking with Jock Cheatham today. Jock is a senior lecturer in journalism at Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, who worked at the Sydney Morning Herald and Fairfax Media for 13 years and was a Walkley Award finalist. Very impressive, Jock. Thanks for joining Charles Sturt Stories today. Oh, thanks very much, Jessica. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, look, today, Jock, we wanted to talk about data surveillance by the government. Uh, I know you've recently written an opinion piece looking at the Australian Signals Directorate and its effect on journalists in Australia. There was a raid on News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst. Can you tell me about that and why it's considered quite worrisome for journalists? Yeah, absolutely. It's unprecedented in a way in Australia and in fact it was internationally conspicuous because journalists are not usually the subject of police raids. And with the News Limited and then the next day I think it was the ABC raids, Mm. a precedent was set and police going in and searching around journalists' files is a dangerous precedent to be set. The problem is that Journalism has a role as a watchdog in democracy. And to have police interfering with that role um, and using a range of these increasingly um, harsh security laws to um, inspect the work of journalists threatens um, the fundamental, um, I suppose, uh, obligation of journalists to their sources to maintain confidentiality. And the ABC raid that you're referring to was to do with Afghanistan, is that correct? And one of the whistleblowers there that had given information to the ABC? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they were both about whistleblowers, but there's also the subtext of why um, the raids took place. So the um, we, we, we're not exactly clear on, on all the reasons because, mm. you know, charges of all various different parties haven't um, eventuated or, or been finalised. But um, the reason I called my piece The Big Chilling Effect is because it's not just about, for example, the police or any other authorities trying to find a whistleblower. It's also about trying to stop people in the future from whistleblowing and stop media outlets from publishing sensitive stories, which, of course, media outlets want to do. Yes. So it's a, it's a struggle between power and those who want to watchdog power. So do you think this is happening now? I mean, in a post 9-11 world, Australia has passed a lot of laws around national security and there's been secrecy around, you know, um, Manus Island and things like that and journalists not being allowed to visit those islands. Is this, I mean, I guess, is this a political point of view that's come around with a certain government or is this just generally Australian governments over the past 15, 20 years that are starting to really prioritise owning data and the secrecy around that? Yeah, there's trends that exist in national security that are responding to genuine threats. Mm. So some of the laws, and one count is that there's been 75 security laws since 9-11. Is that a lot? It sounds like a lot. Just in that one narrow area of legislation, Mm. it is a lot. Mm. Um, I suppose it also 
matters what they actually do. But the the question of whether they're all needed is very uh, conspicuous and very you know vital question, because there's no doubt that there needed to be a response to the changing security environment mm. and that some laws and other actions were a part of that. The question is, has it gone too far? And it, and it has. And the other question is, why has it gone too far? And so in this environment of um, changing nature of security needs in Australia and around the world, um, I believe, and I'm not alone in thinking this, that governments take advantage of the opportunity to say, oh, look, there's a threat. We're introducing these laws and we're changing the way that society is regulated because of this threat. But there may well be, and I think there is, a range of other reasons that the laws are introduced. Because if government or power um, is able to limit the scrutiny that it is under, that is to the advantage of those people in power. They can do more of what they want without being held to account. Mm. And so this is, I believe, part of the game that is being played. Mm. So when it comes to journalists, then, and what the government is doing is passing laws, which is legal, and they're following the legal um, and parliamentary process that Australia has in place. So where does that leave journalists in terms of what they can report on and, and acting as that fourth estate? Do we have a, a, a legal right to press freedom in Australia at the moment? Well, there's a few answers to that because we don't have a, a, a clear constitutional right to freedom of expression or press or media freedom. And when we talk about constitutional rights, the US is, is a model in that because of their First Amendment. Mm. And there have been attempts to introduce various bills of rights, including freedom of speech and so on, in the past, and that just hasn't come to, to pass now, that is um, potentially one way that you can assist in this situation because the American Constitution does a lot to enshrine those free, uh, principles of freedom. But we do have a tradition that goes back to the British background and formation of Australia as a state and the people who settled here and colonised, etc., which is uh, a common law sort of right, I suppose, a common law right. I'm not a lawyer, but a common law right and a belief in and a commitment to freedom and freedom of the press. And so that is a legal basis, but it's somewhat more complex and uh, historic and um, needs, you know, uh, interpretation in a legal sense. And it's, it's not an absolute right. It's not absolute. Mm. I mean, I want, you know, I wonder if any rights are absolute, but that's a good point. But the laws that come in are acting against the, um, or not necessarily against, but they're they're superseding and they're um, adding to that long history of law that we've developed um, as a culture, coming out of the other culture, um, the British culture, and so it. It's eroding that implied right in some ways. Well, yeah, that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in many ways, I think it could be seen that the principles that underlie the Australian system and going back in history have been 
better applied and more um, consistently applied and more perhaps believed in by a wider range of people, including even to some extent governments and people in power in the past than now. And it's that erosion that is the concern and it has a range of very specific things that are happening to erode the ability um, of a whole range of actors to engage in free expression um, and to do the job of journalism. So what's going on in Australia? Why is this happening here when we've traditionally been a free and open and tolerant society and now the government seems to be well cracking down on activists as well? We've seen with the right to farm legislation and what's going on with uh, Extinction Rebellion. And with the data surveillance and looking at what journalists are reporting on and trying to restrict reporting on public office, what what is going on in Australia at the moment? <laughs> If I had to venture an opinion on that, and I do because you just asked me to, um, I'd say that it's aligned with a number of other key issues that are happening at the moment. So the decline in trust in institutions and in politicians from a low base um, also accompanies a rise, I believe, in cynicism and partisanship in politics. And I think there's actually a lot, um, there's a decline in um, public spirit and public life happening at the elite level. It may even be happening in in society at large, but that's a a big call. But I certainly think it's happening at the elite level, Mm. under which the priorities and the intentions of people in the elite are not as public spirited as they are were in the 20th century and you can certainly see that in America as well. So you see a whole range of people who are very much interested in their own interests or their own agendas Mm -hmm. rather than say a full more broad-ranging and and considered um, public interest. And is this big business influencing? Is yeah, this the financial good imperative influencing politics too much? Because as you're talking I'm thinking you know, you should be attracted to public life because you have a vision for society and things that you can deliver, programs that will improve things for people. But thinking about America and, and Trump and thinking about the cult of personality that's coming into politics now, it does seem very individualistic. Mm. 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 No, that's that's exactly true. And I, I was sort of going to move from the the individuals who who I believe are more, shall we say, selfish or self-interested these days to the idea that they achieve their power and they get money and donations in order to uh, get into power by um, being aligned with corporate interests. Mm. And so the influence, the money influence in politics has always been there Mm. and and corporate influence on Australian politics has always been there or business influence. Mm. And that's not all bad, of course. But I do believe that the political parties... Um, particularly the mainstream, the two main parties, have very specific um, relationships with um, bigger corporations and they have, they're engaged with the interests and the needs of the corporations. And while they may be Australian companies, some of those, Mm. their interests are not necessarily specifically aligned with Australia's interests. Mm. They can they can be inconsistent. Mm. But they have a lot of access, as we know, to the corridors of power and they buy that access with money. So I absolutely think that 
the way that politics operates with trying to represent the interest of a narrow subsection of Australian society is a big part of the problem yeah. rather than a more holistic view of the public interest. I just I do see a narrowing in that area and that's a big part of the problem and mm. also why the trust is lost. And then I guess that makes data quite powerful too. If you think about that relationship narrowing between politics and business and then the value and power of, of people's personal data, not just from a national security point of view, but from a value point of view, becomes a little bit scary. Are we heading towards <laughs> an Australia where, you know, I mean, I guess the obvious comparison is, you know, the whole big brother idea, but is that where this type of data surveillance is potentially going? Or do we feel that the courts and we still have enough process and, and protections around press that we can call attention to these things? Well, we still have a, a strong media sector, although it's suffering from its uh, resource hits due to um, digital disruption. But I do think we're heading in a direction of increasing securitisation and we're heading towards or may already be at in, in many ways a national security state. And that's part of the reason that so many people are protesting and pushing back, not just from the media, but including the representatives of media companies and outlets. So not just commercial media, not just the ABC, but a whole cooperation, and then also journalists as professionals pushing back. But as to your question about where are we heading, mm. one of the issues that you could look at if you're looking forward is facial recognition technology. And that is that is where maybe the Big Brother thing is, is starting to I come in. I find that really creepy. Mm. Uh, the level of scrutiny and visibility of your individual person that I find that, to me, that's a bridge too far for my comfort level. Mm. Um, but you can certainly see the argument in favour of it around, well, it's about creating a, a certain level of fear around terrorism and different things and saying that we need this, you know, to fight, I put in inverted commas, the other, which is what we're afraid of. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that argument about what we need to fight the other or to fight or to be secure is the reason that's given for the encroaching of the state onto our liberties. Mm. And there is a genuine debate about how legitimate all that of is. those measures are, and that's fair enough. But mm. it's it's interesting because, you know, in the last, say, 20 years, we've been having debates in, in towns and cities about CCTV, about yes. cameras in the streets and stuff. Yes. And we even have that in Bathurst and in every city probably. And for some people, they don't even want that. And that's just uh, something that's only really monitored, in, as in general, only really monitored when there's a crime. But facial recognition technology combined with cameras all around the streets, for example, um, which is a future scenario and is already happening in some parts of the world, is really in the Big Brother territory. It's a whole other thing. It's like, go back 30 years and the Labor government tried to introduce the Australia card, which was basically something where you had a number and you were gonna, it was linked to your name and it was going to be the way that you accessed all government services. But there was a massive protest about it and people were saying, oh, you have to carry this card with your number on it and show it to the police or whoever whenever they ask you to. And it just became a kind of like a an early form of the debate we're having now. Yes. But the people won. They basically rejected it. 
And um, but if you if you compare that, mm. that is actually benign compared to the idea that whatever you do yes. in public, in the view of these this system, this yes. surveillance system, can be not only can it be kind of stored and and or you can be viewed at any given time, but you can be kind of tracked in your movements and stuff. So mm. that is potentially valuable, uh, valuable for security. And you mm. can see part of the reasons that that might be useful for terrorism. But, you know, how great is the terrorism um, threat? We mm. don't have to ask ourselves this. I mean, it exists, but we 25 million of us live our lives you know, in in peace, in generally speaking, in mm. Australia, and and we go about our lives without feeling too paranoid. So, and I suppose the government argument against that is, well, you don't know about any of this stuff because mm. we protect you from it and mm. make you feel safe. And if you did know, maybe you would want facial recognition. I'm not sure. And you can see it from both sides, but I think mm. it comes back to your comment earlier, Jock, about trust in our politicians and our political institutions. Perhaps if we had a level of trust with them, facial recognition software, we would believe that it's for our safety. Whereas, Mm. you know, having looked at the way different governments operate, and I I think I read something earlier today about the Australian Signals Directorate breaching what they're permitted to do and, Mm. and tracking data without ministerial authority. So, you know, once you have these things in place, the temptation for these organisations is to do more than what they are allowed to do, then we don't trust them anymore. And so then we don't want any of it. It makes it very difficult as a citizen to know where you sit on these types of issues. But I think we rely on things like journalists and the legal system to be independent from the government to kind of fight that good fight for us. And so it worries it worries me as an individual citizen a little bit that journalists might be curtailed in that way or, or whistleblowers might be charged in the way that they are, in the way that the Afghan uh, whistleblower has been charged because it will just stop the flow of, of critique and information. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's directly related to trust. So if journalists are prevented from telling the whole story or, or can't find the whole story, then the public isn't informed. And you're talking about it's quite difficult to make that decision for the public. Mm. And for those in the public who are actually interested in knowing, which isn't everybody, mm. and interested in being informed, it's important that journalism can do its job so they're fully informed. If mm. they're not fully informed, they might be inclined to place their trust where it's not necessarily should be. Mm. So the openness idea, the idea of more transparency is about giving people information so they can make the decisions. Mm. And so I think the attempt to suppress the flow of information and to control who speaks about what, which is just this ever-increasing inhibition, uh, prohibition, I think that increasing control is part of a broader pattern of of governments wanting to control society. Mm. So is it for our own benefit, for our security? To some extent, yeah. But to what extent is it it about control? And to what extent do we want to be controlled? Oof, that's a big philosophical question because I think some people don't mind being controlled and others really rail against it. And Mm. you've got a full spectrum of how people feel about that in society. So it makes it quite tough. Jock, what would you tell students in your classes, students that are studying journalism, that want to be journalists, that want to break stories like this? What's the advice that you would give them 
considering our current situation? Well, one of the issues is um, source protection. So journalists and journalism students need to understand how to do it from a kind of technical point of view, and they have to understand what the risks are, which are increasing because of these laws and because of the ability of government and police to access their information relatively easily now these days. But they also have to know the basic principles that it's really important to um, establish trust yourself with your sources and to give when you give them confidentiality to sort of guarantee that. And you can guarantee that on a personal level, but if you then don't know what the risks are to that promise, mm. then your guarantee is, is worth less. So they need to they need to be informed. And does that mean so when you were a journalist and you were a journalist for many years on, on major mastheads, does that mean you as a journalist are taking individual responsibility and therefore risk for protecting a source if you were then charged with something? Or what, what's it like in that newsroom space? Does the organisation back you up or is it, is it very much that you're taking on that personal risk to yourself? No, the organisations back you up as a general rule mm. and they only do certain types of stories. So they, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily do a particular uh, type of story for a commercial TV station that you might do for the ABC. So on that level is a more complex series of kind of dynamics going on about what they will and won't. Publish. discuss and mm. publish and what they're interested in and you know who they will challenge and um, what they think their audience is interested in. Mm. But as a general rule, my experience in newsroom and my belief about most newsrooms is that they absolutely stand with their journalists and their team and that if you as an individual journalist make a guarantee that it's accepted that your editor probably or executive producer or whatever will be an individual who you might involve in discussing who that source is. Um, okay. So so there could be another person who verbally is involved or mm. maybe one or two people who are verbally involved in who that source is. Not always, but often, because that editor wants to cooperate with a journalist on, yes. on you know, on what's happening in their mm. outlet. Yes. But then once that sort of agreement is reached, if it, if it works like that, then the media outlet supports that that's I mean that's how they operate that's the game they're in like any industry they have They've process that and that's yeah. yeah it's part of the process it's how how the business works did you work in a space where you had a lot of sources that you needed to keep confidential when you were a journalist um, I had some that were off the record um, and some that were at different levels of off the record because you know you can have like a kind of deep background where people don't want any sense that the information has come from a source and where it's come from. Or you can have a kind of an anonymized thing. So you might say like a senior bureaucrat in the health department, for yeah. example. Yeah. And you negotiate that with your sources because you want to be able to tell the reader as close to the full information as you can. Mm. You don't want to just say a source says or something, preferably. Mm. You want them to have some sense of how credible the information is. And in fact, it's mm. preferable to get on the record. Well, that is always more yeah, credible, that, isn't that's it? that's the goal. Yeah. But 
but sometimes you can't do it. Yeah. And that is the the way that, that journalism is able to encourage more people to speak because mm. the risk to them is less. Yes. And then there's this whole verification process because you still have to establish that what somebody has told you is true. That's right. There has to be some level of, of proof involved. You mm. can't just quote an unnamed source saying anything, obviously. Well, it happens a lot, actually. Oh, really? It happens too often <laughs> and terrifying. there are mistakes are made and, and journalists and media are manipulated and, and so on. But, mm. you know, to do the job well, mm. it's a constant sort of process of verification mm. and checking and, you know, contrasting what you hear and just trying to get closer to what you think is mm. true. So over your years as a journalist, are there stories that stick out in your mind that were you're either particularly proud of or that you felt propelled your career forward or stories you still think about today that you're glad that you wrote? Yeah, there yeah. are a few. I mean, the, the the job of journalism is not as glamorous as films about the hero journalists it make out. It does look glamorous on, yeah, in movies and... Yeah. <laughs> Having said that, it's very interesting. When you look at and all of that sort of thing and Zodiac, you think, oh, gosh, that does look really interesting. But <laughs> Yeah, well, they, they have trouble um, conveying um, what it feels like to work for 12 hours or, you know, 12-hour days or, or, or whatever, which um, I'm not saying I did all the time. But, but you know, teams like Spotlight who exposed the... Um, Catholic Church clerical abuse in Boston mm. um, through the Boston Globe, mm. they just, they work really, really hard. And successful journalists do that too, you know, mm. like it's a, it's a big job like any like high pressure big job. And mm. But your question was about stories that I remember. Yeah. I mean, there's a series of stories. The one probably that had the most impact, mm. I think in a broader social sense, was about illegal pornography being sold in sex shops around New South Wales. So your Walkley Award, is that was that the story that had you nominated for the Walkley Award or was that something No, else? it wasn't. The, I was a finalist for a feature series in the Sydney Morning Herald about a murder that took place in Willamaloo. What was the murder? What was that about? There was a guy called Isaac Dinsdale who I think it was in around about 2007-ish, around about that time, who was killed when a group of 10 people came to his front door and they stabbed him probably at the front door and he ran through the group and they may have stabbed him again. Then they chased him and he fell over down the road and they um, jumped on him and kicked him and, and maybe stabbed him again. And the story was about over four days in mm. the Herald about why it was that none of those 10 people were convicted, including the one the story focused on who actually stood trial all the way to the end. To no a, one was convicted. No one was convicted. And my conclusion, mm. and I had a range of evidence and pieces of bits of story about what happened, my conclusion was that the biggest reason was witness intimidation. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was sad. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Woolloomooloo and I also explored the sociological aspects of the community and the fact that it was a big housing estate with poverty and the relationship between that and crime mm. and the um, alienation to a certain extent from police. And I approached the victim, Isaac Dinsdale's family, and mm. I spoke to his widow uh, and they had children and I spoke oh. to his grandparents and, and so on. And so it was 
it was both um, it was both interesting and sad. It was obviously a tragedy, and it was also fairly complex, but also a story that reflects some of the ways that in which we we just let parts of our society just sort of sit there with 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 needs and we ignore them a bit too much. Yeah, I was thinking as you were saying it's because it's easier to ignore it sometimes than thinking of a solution to things. Yeah. Which brings us back to politics because really some solutions should be coming from those different different, you know, local, state, federal areas. Thanks for speaking with me today, Jock. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share about journalism, the state of journalism in general? Anything else? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, in terms of our press freedom topic, mm. the media outlets combined in the public right to know campaign. So there is a pushback. There is a campaign to change the laws and, and the government is considering that and they're probably trying to figure out how much pressure is really coming their way on it. Yeah. And there's enough pressure to make them want to make noises about moving on thing, things like defamation and so on. My sense is they'll budge a little, probably not a lot unless there's more pressure. Mm. And so that's one place to go to get more information about it. And, and another place is the MEAA, Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Mm. In, and links to that are in my article. But uh, that campaign may well need more public support to make it more um, effective and mm. to actually get some change to happen because I think we, we'll need to keep pressing. That's right. And those links can be found on the uh, news website at Charles State University and encourage everyone to read Jock's opinion piece on press freedoms, which is does make for chilling reading, and I know the word chilling is in the title, but it's true. Jock, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and um, I hope to speak to you again. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au. Mm-hmm.